everybody, and welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm joined by two guests today, Ben Williams and Carson Fakes. And we're going to do a two-podcast. We've been referring to it affectionately as the Megapod uh, in, in the lead-up to this. But two episodes on a topic that uh, we've done a little bit of, of recording on before. Ben was, was with us a few months ago when we did The Age of the Earth. We want to tackle faith and science, in particular, theistic evolution. So we're going to spend some time in a minute talking about the spectrum of the faith and science discussion. But this is just another installment in uh, a specific branch of that conversation. And the, and the reason that we want to do this is because I think Christians too often are quick to seed ground when it comes to science for a lot of different reasons. One of those reasons is that it's a highly technical area. And another one of those reasons is for a very long time, and I think this trend is changing, science has been the realm of secularity. And I just don't think that's true anymore. I, I don't think that was ever true from a Christian standpoint, but even in our society, I just don't think that's true anymore. So as I said in the 2020 Predictions podcast, I envision the next few years, maybe decade, being a time when Christians actually spend more of their time and energy and money and investment in the sciences. I really think that if we believe that all truth is God's truth, and we believe that God has given us minds that line up with the world that he created, Christians should be on the front line of science. And uh, I think we're beginning to live in a world where Christians and conservatives and people who are interested in a theistic world uh, are going to be drawn towards the sciences. So uh, that's kind of the intro. We're going to spend this first episode talking about uh, this book that we've read and, and a reviewing called Theistic Evolution. And I just want to make clear, while Carson and Ben both have science degrees and science backgrounds, I don't uh, really. I'm, I'm just going to try and moderate and pitch in where I can. I have a philosophy background, which is, as you'll see later, is very antagonistic to... <laughs> the work of imbeciles. Some of, these, yeah, just... <laughs> some of the things we're going to talk about. Um, and then, obviously, a math background, which makes me think I'm better than everyone uh, in, in the natural sciences. I, hey, I'm going to have some math-related questions today, so it's, it's so, great that you're here to do that. It's a real clash of, of degrees and things, but uh, we're, we're not PhDs in science, and so what we're trying to do on this podcast is not come up with constructive arguments in biology or, or microbiology. Um, I will press Carson to come up with some arguments in genetics since that's his area. But what we're really trying to do is summarize and talk through and engage with the arguments themselves. And there's a quote in this book, this, this book, Theistic Evolution, edited by J.P. Moreland, Stephen Meyer, Christopher Shaw, uh, Wayne Grudem, and Ann Gallagher. It covers a theological, a scientific, a philosophical breadth of issues relating to a critique of theistic evolution. We'll, we'll talk about that in, in a minute. But in one of the opening articles, Douglas Axe, who is a scientist, uh, who is an evolutionary biologist, ha put this in perspective. He said, non-scientists tend to be so acutely aware of their lack of expertise that they defer to anyone with a science degree and most of whom have no more familiarity with the technical critique of Darwinism than anyone else. And I, th I feel like that's where most Christians are, is uh, it's easy to say, well, I'm, I'm not a scientist, so I can't engage with this. But this actually has huge implications for faith, for the way that uh, education is done, for the way that we see the world, for the way that we use our minds to understand the world. So let me kick it off and, and just say, guys, when and how did you get interested in faith and science? Carson? Yeah, I think it was natural for me being someone who's been a Christian since I was a kid and growing up in the church, as well as somebody who was interested in science and who really enjoyed that. So I think it was a natural question that you had to encounter being interested in both of those fields. And so for me, I was always interested in it. I read books on it and wanted to hear people talk about it and speak about it. But it wasn't really until college that a lot of the specifics of Darwinism and how that can intersect with faith and how those specifics really came to me. Uh, it wasn't until later in life. Um, and so in college, I was able to have a few experiences, mostly on the side of being educated about Darwinism and evolution. Mm -hmm. um, so taking classes like physiology, uh, zoology, anatomy, things like that, and even having a chance to take a class specifically on Darwin and Darwinism. Um, so that's where a lot of, of my knowledge of that came from. But I've always been interested in 
what does faith say about science and how should we as Christians approach science, uh, being someone who always had an interest in that field uh, and just wanting to know what would that look like for me. Uh, for me, I attended as a I don't know, 12-year-old boy one of those kind of awful quasi-scientific uh, apologetic seminars your church hosts. Uh-huh. The kind you look back at now and say, wow, that was just really bad. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. at the time, I thought it was just the best thing that could ever happen. And it, it created a love for me of, of thinking of, of my faith as not at odds with mm-hmm. science. And so that was exciting. Uh, and then I was pretty good at physics in high school, so I kept going that route. Ended up at OU, where uh, two wonderful things happened. One, I had an opportunity to kind of specialize in astrophysics, and uh, especially in the area of cosmology and and big-picture questions, which fascinated me. And then second, that OU has a world-class history of science department, Mm. which meant that I almost ended up with a minor in in history of science, just taking every elective I could over there. Uh, And that's so fascinating to get get a bird's eye view of where these pictures that we take for granted in science developed, um, how relatively recent some of them are, uh-huh. and how they have changed. So that, And how Christian the history is, uh, by and uh-huh. large, has been fascinating. So that all that kind of coalesced into um, to that. At the end of that, for me personally, um, the end of the science process was kind of deflating that you end up at the end punching a lot of numbers into a machine and doing a lot of data work, Mm. but my love with the philosophy and concept of it has stayed with me, and so now Mm -hmm. philosophy of science, history of science, any of those areas are still very interesting to me. Yeah, that's something that's big for me too, especially being a a younger person interested in science, is the idea that through science you can actually reveal a lot about the creator, Mm -hmm. and a lot about what your faith is based in, and so that's the earliest connection that I can remember, is just thinking of when you learn about things in science, that it tells you something about God. And that's why I was interested in microbiology and genetics and things like that, because it was fascinating to me just to look into a microscope and be able to see a whole other world going on that I had no idea about. And mm-hmm. that if I hadn't seen that, I still would have no idea about. And so knowing that those are things that can tell you more about God or that can show you things that you never would have seen or experienced otherwise was something that really interested me. Um, and that's the first time I can remember those things intersecting in my mind. So it's funny. So you, you saw that looking through a microscope. For me, it was the telescope. That mm. that other world I found, and one of, it's to this day, my favorite thing to talk to science students about is the relative scale of things we talk about in astronomy and just how unimaginably large it is out there. And, and that was exciting that we were a very small piece of a very big universe. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, as you would find out, you know, that scales down even further exactly. to a world that's fascinating and beyond belief. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and one of the takeaways I hope that people get from this episode, if, if you're listening to this, and whether or not you have a science background, is exactly what you all have described. The, the curiosity to understand the world and explore the world is a Christian virtue. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is something that we yeah. can be and should be engaged in as Christians, is if God made the world... And, and a lot of us have this subtle Gnosticism, Docetism, whatever you want to call it in the early church, that we believe the spiritual is good and the physical is bad. But if we believe that God created this world, then, Carson, like you said, exploring the world is exploring, in some ways, the character of the God who made it. Obviously, um, you know, you can see God's work. You can it, Romans says you can see his eternal attributes by studying the creation. So... Um, the first way I want to dive in here is we're going to tailor the discussion to this book, uh, but to get started in the book, we need to do a few definitions. And so, obviously, the big the big definition would be Darwinism, and uh, whether or not that's an interchangeable term with evolution. Uh, when you say theistic evolution, you probably think of Darwin. You think of um, probably uh, depending on your science background, you think of the origin of species or the voyage of the beagle or something. Uh, but one of the things that's pretty evident in this book is that Darwinism and evolution have become very different things. And so I want to just start, maybe Ben, give us a, a quick recap of when we say evolution or when we say Darwinism, or if we're going to distinguish between those two, what are the kinds of things that we mean? It's interesting, so not coming from a life science background, we use the word evolution a lot in astronomy, stellar evolution, galactic evolution. 
Um, but we never talk about Darwin, right? Uh-huh. And yet, kind of, the, the legacy is there of mm-hmm. gradual and persistent change and upward development of systems uh, that conceptually was present in, in, I guess now, every branch of science has some flavor of that mm-hmm. uh, in it. I think when we talk about Darwinian uh, philosophy or science, or however you want to term that, uh, you are talking about a system of gradual changes uh, that were of the sort a fella could observe in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's probably something that is the myth least well understood in popular culture, mm-hmm. is that all Darwin had access to was 19th century level study and hybridization and mutations yeah. of that sort. The sort of things you can look at it, the Galapagos Islands, um, mm-hmm. your favorite turtles or whatever. and, wow. and Finch beaks. You yeah, know. yeah, so yes. no doubt. I mean, from that point of view, with the data he had available, um, came up with a, a way of reading that data. But uh, the, the more developed and nuanced genetic version of that that comes out mm-hmm. of the 20th century is very different. Mm-hmm. Sure. A lot of the engine of what we think of as modern evolutionary theory happened well after Darwin. Yeah. And I would encourage anyone who's interested to read On the Origin of Species yes. by Charles Darwin and to see, because I think you'll be a little surprised when you read it, and that Darwin's big thing wasn't that he created this theory of evolution. That had been a theory well before Darwin. Mm-hmm. The thing that Darwin revolutionized was the mechanism by which he believed evolution happened. And so that happened by his own observation and he attached it to specific needs and um, selection in nature. So the idea of natural selection being that that is a force that can drive certain traits and characteristics of animals to a point that they change their actual physiological structure. Mm. So that was Darwin's main premise was Mm -hmm. that evolution happens through natural selection. The idea of evolution in a broader sense existed before Darwin and is a much broader topic even outside of him. Uh, but his contribution was specifically in the mechanism, and that's what most of On the Origin of Species is about, is about that mechanism being the real driver of evolution. Mm-hmm. Is it Lyell or Lyell, who's the geologist kind of contemporary to Darwin, that's, mm-hmm. that's doing the, the non-catastrophic, long-term geologic formation? And it's a very similar picture, mm-hmm. uh, contemporary, and if anything, if I remember right, um, he was probably more belligerent uh, about his mm-hmm. point of view than even than Darwin. Yeah. Uh, but yes, yeah, so the idea of it exists, but having, you're right, I think having a biological mechanism was a, a new concept. Well, right. so much of evolution now has become a full-fledged system that explains yes. not just the, the adaptation and the origin of species, although as we're going to talk about later, that's that's one of the things that really plagues Darwin is the question of origins as opposed to the question yeah, of yeah. adaptation. That's a good point. But what Darwin has really contributed to the to the, you know, when you say Darwinian evolution, you're narrowing things down from this giant worldview that it's become today to a simple mechanism. So what is the mechanism that's causing change to take place over time amongst different species and to create different species? And that would be natural selection. Uh, the other definition I wanted to hit was just when we say things like theistic evolution, um, if we were going to put this all on a spectrum, if you have Darwinian evolution, it in some ways deserves to be on this spectrum, but in some ways doesn't. It has become an all-out worldview, but doesn't necessarily have to be one. On the other side of that, you have creationism in, in some form or another, and more specifically what we would refer to as maybe young earth creationism, maybe intelligent design. There's a lot of different versions of this. Mm-hmm. This book is about a middle option. And there are definitely different takes on this middle option, but theistic evolution is essentially a vision of trying to combine the mechanisms of evolution in a lot of different scientific areas without being a materialist. So believing that God set things in motion, created the world by natural laws and uh, through the mechanism of of natural selection, and we got to where we are today through those processes superintended by God. Is that what you guys would arrive at for for, uh, theistic evolution? Yeah, I think that's fair. Yes. um, 
you'll end up with the phrase, a, a guided random process is what you usually end up with. Which yes. comes up a lot in the book, but yeah. for sake of a definition, yeah, that, yes. that, that kind of works. Yeah. So one of the things that the book is trying to do is critique this position. And the most fundamental critique of the position is when you have a middle position like this, you actually lose uh, the best of both of the out, outside options. And right. so in, in one of the introductory articles by Stephen Meyer, that's the point he's making is a lot of times in theistic evolution, you have this nice sounding system of guided evolution, which is one of the things that evolution is missing. And it's one of the things that Christians really want to have there in an evolutionary system. You end up with science that doesn't really cut it from a Darwinian perspective. You end up with theology and biblical interpretation that doesn't really cut it from a biblical perspective. Uh, but you don't get a synthesis that you necessarily want. And part of what I want to do is just explore from a scientific side in this episode and then in the next one from a philosophical and, and biblical approach why maybe you don't end up with the synthesis that you want. So one of the things that struck me about the book is just the overall prevalence of the Darwinian explanatory model across the sciences. And part of that, I think, is because of uh, the time it's taken to develop. But something about it is just the grip that that explanatory mechanism of natural selection has on all the sciences. Um, and where, where this book is going to specialize is going to be in the biological sciences, in genetics. It's going to talk a lot about um, human origins. Mm -hmm. uh, not as much the cosmology side of it. I was a little sad to see not as much yeah. in there. But... Uh, Carson, when it comes to the biological sciences, what are the big issues that, that are there and, and that this book raises? So it does bring up quite a few of them in this book. Um, I'm trying to think of where to start. I think going off of what you said about how Darwinism has become not just a theory in itself, but as a way to try to explain science more generally and as almost a method of interpretation of science i do think it's interesting just in just in the timeline you have darwin in the middle of the 19th century coming up with this theory but a lot of our modern scientific advances especially in a field like genetics which really didn't explode until middle of the 20th century so about 100 years later um, that a lot of these advances that we would look to now didn't happen until after darwin and since Darwin was before then, I think it almost became a way to try to adapt the theory into new advances as they came along. And so this book identifies some of those. Uh, one of the areas that it does that is in genetics. So genetics has been a field that's widely used to argue for Darwinian principles, to point to common ancestry and just the origin of species through evolution. But in this book, I like the arguments that are made attacking that, basically centering around mutations and around DNA. Mm -hmm. So at the very crux of natural selection is the idea that you have natural variety within populations. Mm -hmm. So just for a quick explanation, the idea of natural selection means in a given population of animals, you have some that have different traits than others. So maybe it's a longer beak, maybe it's a sharper beak. Um, and there's slight variations due to mutations that have happened just over time. So these random mutations have created slightly different characteristics. And then the natural selection side of it is there's an outside force uh, that comes in, whether it's the drying up of a food source, whether it's a weather change, that all of a sudden one of those characteristics is favored over another in the same population. Mm -hmm. uh, and so and from that, then you start to see the animals that don't have that characteristic die off, and the ones that do will procreate more. And inevitably you'll end up with a population that has characteristics better suited to the new environment. Mm -hmm. So that's the process of natural selection, but the mechanism has to come through those mutations mm -hmm. in DNA itself. And so they do a good job of analyzing in here basically just the probability that mutations could produce enough genetic variety that was either neutral or positive mm -hmm. in a way that would lay the groundwork for natural selection to actually take place. Yeah, and either the way I read it... Meyer's intro article lays out the, the case that they're going to make through the subsequent articles. And, and the crux of his argument is twofold. If, if that's the process, like you've laid out, that's going on here, then there are a couple of problems that arise 
when you get into the areas of uh, protein, protein synthesis and creation, and biological information. Um, so both of those intertwined with genetics, obviously microbiology. And what he's going to argue is, okay, if you already have a population, natural selection works great. Uh, that, that would be a very crude version of the micro versus macro distinction that, that we often make. Does adaptation happen in nature? Sure. Once you have a population. Right. So what he's saying is the big problem for um, an evolutionary explanation, and, and, and he's targeting that towards theistic evolution, is can you ever create new information or new proteins only using uh, the biological processes embedded in natural selection? So his argument is going to be no. In, in fact, natural selection tends to make things simpler rather than more complex over time but to get from single cell, I think the biggest jump is to get from no life to life. How do you explain that expansion of information with only the processes available in a Darwinistic or an evolutionary viewpoint? So let's jump to the let's jump to protein synthesis first. Yeah. Probably most of us, I would include myself in this, don't understand why that's a compelling point or what that has to do with anything. Yeah. Uh, so explain his argument a little bit when it comes to proteins. So with protein synthesis, um, just a, a simple overview. The idea is that genes turn into reality or genes turn into physiology uh, because of protein synthesis. So the idea is you have DNA that is your genetic code, your chromosomes and your cells, which then gets transcribed into RNA, which is sort of a, a middleman. It's a, it contains even better instructions for your body to use. So then the RNA gets translated into a string of amino acids that folds into a protein. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's the general process. So when we think of DNA, that's the method with which DNA can influence the physical world, mm -hmm. essentially, is by having instructions for your body to use to make different proteins. And so through that process, it sounds fairly straightforward. However, there are a lot of stops along the way where there are a lot of factors, there are a lot of conditions going on that are beyond just what's in the DNA, what's in the RNA, and what ultimately becomes the protein. Mm -hmm. So with regard to mutations, um, Meyer argues that the vast majority of mutations are loss of function mutations. So if you have DNA that gets mutated, the most likely result is that the protein at the end of the process is just going to be defective. Mm -hmm. And so you're very rarely going to get a protein that's either neutral but different, so it creates a different kind of physiology, or one that's actually advantageous. So because those are so small, and mutations happen so infrequently that would actually show up, mm -hmm. that the probability of having novel proteins that are formed mm -hmm. is very, very small. And so to have enough of those changes happen in order to produce this large-scale change, um, just based on protein folding and protein formation yeah. is very improbable. Um, I think that's probably his strongest argument. Yeah. It's just from the probability. Right. So let me ask then, something we were discussing earlier, mm -hmm. uh, some of those probabilities are really, really large numbers. Uh, there's 10 to the 195th in one passage and something really obscene numbers. Yeah. Which I, I gather... Okay, from a math point of view, if I've got a Scrabble set, I've got a bag of letters, mm -hmm. and I'm just pulling letters out, I can say, well, there's one in a 26th chance I'll get an E, and one in 26 I'll get an A. Right. But that's not necessarily in, in the chemical part of this, but not every combination works. And so are some of those numbers inflated in the sense that, yeah, these are all the mathematical possibilities, but there are some prohibited paths to go down and some more likely paths, or is that really a fair way to look at how they, that data comp, uh, accumulates? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a, a fair question to ask. And I would say on the bottom line, uh, no, I think the numbers are, are fair in the sense that I do think it's such an astronomical probability uh, that it, it's probably fair. But at the same time, especially with protein folding, because as proteins are strings of amino acids, 
and they fold based on the properties of the individual, what are called side chains of the amino acids. So you basically have a chain, and every link in your chain has a string on it that is attracted in some fashion to some of the other strings on the chain. Mm -hmm. and so it's just through positive and negative charges and the way the atoms are arranged. So they fold based on those charges. And that's how you get a protein is through that folding process. So some of the amino acids are similar enough in their side chain properties that they could fold in similar ways. But I think ultimately it's not going to have a big effect on uh, what he's pointing out as the astronomical probability. In my head, I was thinking of the difference between Scrabble and chess. So Scrabble, you pull letters out, but in chess, you know, what are the odds that I randomly put pieces on the board and get to a position that is possible in chess or whatever? Well, the white bishop will never end up on a black square. Or what, you know, there are right. some rules built into the system that would actually rule out some outcomes mm -hmm. or make some of them more probable that all the pieces end up on the other side of the ponds. You know, there's some yeah. weird outcomes that, and I'm wondering if that is a better analogy than my Scrabble analogy mm -hmm. to what's happening with protein. Yeah, there's still 64 squares, and there's a lot of piece movements. Off. I, I don't want to try to do the math of how many possible game scenarios there are for a chessboard, but yeah. there are also limitations. It's not necessarily the biggest infinite you can think of because yeah. there are internal rules to that system. Right. Yeah, well, and, you know, there's a, there's a lot to that metaphor, I think, that, that goes really well with what Meyer is saying, because, you know, the, the, the probability picture that he uses in the book is, it's imagine trying to search for a combination on a lock that has 70 dials of 10 letters each. You know, yeah. you've got to have all of them exactly right. Uh, the thing that you don't think about, and Carson, you hinted at this earlier, is what happens when you have a wrong uh, dial. And it's, it's, it, this is not a model of, well, you know, you have a mutation, which would be like, you know, some, some kid comes in and spins one of the knobs. You know, it, it, like in chess, there are certain combinations that are going to play. You know, there's, there are certain pieces that have certain available moves mm -hmm. and certain ones that don't. And, uh, you know, among the, the lock with 70 dials, you know, he's saying there's one solution. But let, let's imagine that there were 100, for example. So it becomes a question of when you move the dial uh, because of a certain mutation, what does that mutation do to the system? And I think a lot of times we think, oh, well, mutations are happening all the time. And mutations, it's just, you know, it might cause a, a, an animal to have a certain different feature, but that's okay, and maybe gets eliminated, or maybe it turns out to be good. But on the level of protein, it's like the lock, or it's like the chessboard where, no, actually, when you change something, it is locked. Or when you try to move the bishop straight ahead, it doesn't work. Like, that's, that, that's not the rules of the game. Or, or to use, like, the language of Sagan or Dawkins, who have always been more brutal about how brutal the universe is, Yeah. quite often these stories end with, and then everyone dies. <laughs> and then that creature goes extinct or whatever. Yeah. But there, there's not a lot of uh, roundabouts in these sequences where we just come back and try it again with the next generation. It right. could just kill everyone if yeah. that worked out. And, and that's the point that, that Meyer makes yeah. really well is uh, heritability is part of this conversation that gets overlooked a lot is... Yeah. What changes lead to the end of an organism and which ones are even able to be passed down? And to put this simply, the argument that he makes is most changes that are heritable, that can be passed down um, on a bigger scale than just the, the proteins, uh, are too late in the process to be able to be passed down. And the ones that are early enough are usually fatal. Right. So the, the yeah. chances of having early enough and heritable and beneficial changes um, is extremely low. It made me wonder, I mean, so you do the statistics and it, there's one in this many that works. How many of them end with a, a cue ball earth with no living thing on it? I mean, mm -hmm. how many scenarios are there for this to completely unravel? Right. And that might, to me, would be a more interesting set of statistical analysis of how many ways could we put this sequence together where we exterminate all life on Earth by putting with this, this genetic mutation 
put something into the gene pool that led to this weakness that led to this weakness that right. leads to. Uh, and we probably don't think of it that way. The the more likely of the annihilation of the weakest rather than the survival right. of the fittest. We're much more likely to think of mutations in the Ninja Turtles way. Uh, yes. Uh, if you have yes. a mutation, it gives you some new power. Yes, you're an X-Men. I, I was thinking yeah. X-Men, but no, Ninja Turtles <laughs> yeah. is good. Yeah, Ninja, Ninja, Ninja Turtles. Turtles was yeah. the first one that came yes. to my mind. But the reality is a, yeah. an overwhelming majority of mutations are loss of function, which makes sense even on the protein level. If you take out one of those amino acids and you put another one in, that can change the whole fold of the protein. And protein have to be very specifically folded in order to fit where they're supposed to go, in order to bind with what they're supposed to bind to, and in order to do the job that um, they're there to do, they need to be very specifically shaped and folded and have charges on the right side, certain atoms facing the right way. Mm-hmm. So by swapping out one of those, there's a chance that you create a new protein fold. But I think this is another thing that gets addressed in the book that's worth mentioning, is that mutations have to happen in some kind of... Um, in some kind of sequence so that, yeah, you have this cool new protein. Maybe it can do something really cool, but it needs a certain receptor mm-hmm. to do that. Well, if it's random, who's to say that the receptor is going to come along with it? Right. Uh, or that the down-the-line functionality is going to be there. Yes. When you do get this great new mutation. Yeah. Um, you know, it's the arguments like this in the book that, that made me think about the common misconceptions that we hold for the evolutionary process and, you know, in this one especially, it, we tend to think of macroevolution stories as opposed to the microevolution processes that get you there. Right. So, um, you know, Carson, you and I both had a professor in college uh, in separate, separate classes. Yours was really pretty cool. Mine was just like a weekend class <laughs> that you could go to three or four times and get yelled at about Darwinism. Yes. But, um, you know, we had this teacher in the class, who's a really committed Darwinist. And I wouldn't even say an evolutionist, because he just loved Darwin. In some yes. ways, that's even better than evolution. But, right. um, you know, wanted to be a paleontologist, wanted to go to the to the places where you could see uh, what Darwin saw. Had been to the Galapagos. He'd been to the Galapagos. Yeah. He'd, he'd looked at fossils, um, looked at finches. I mean, he'd, yeah. he'd done all of it. So, uh, you know, one of the things I noticed in that class was how quick he was to explain the pattern of Darwinian evolution from a macro perspective. Um, and that, that would be things that you call Darwinian histories. So say, you know, you have an animal and we, we think that it, it descended from this version of, of, of some other animal that we have or a proto version of these two. Well, you know, one of them lived by the water and one of them started to go around the land and as the one that went by the water, the ones that actually had skin that was more suited to the water and their diet was this way, started to procreate more. And you can see how over a million years it became amphibious. And that's where we typically start these stories, but that's actually not the mechanism that usually changes uh, the course of a species. And it certainly isn't the mechanism that takes place in terms of mutations. Um, That would be adaptation, not mutations. Right. Yeah, and that's... To an extent, those evolutionary histories, those are things that are observable. Um, and we can see that certain factors from the environment can cause organisms to adapt in order to survive. But on the level of macroevolution, I always thought it was interesting with those stories. And I, I genuinely think that if you are a Darwinist, your best case comes from the fossil record and comes from physiological studies of how animals share certain traits or they have certain what are called vestigial organs or uh, body parts that look like they could have come from something else. Panda's thumbs. That's right. Panda's thumbs is a good example. Um, (laughs) And so I think that that's why he was so interested in those. But at the same time, it makes a lot more sense when you're sitting here looking back at it and able to construct your own conditions, able to construct your own narrative Mm -hmm. of how it could have happened. Mm -hmm. And there's a good part in the book too about deductive versus abductive reasoning about how uh, if you look at a conclusion and project an explanation it might be possible and it might be even likely but you can't say that that's how it happened and when you look at a big scale like macroevolution and the origin of species you're talking about a gigantic scale that Mm -hmm. all of these conditions had to happen on one planet um, right for all of these different species to form but i 
I do think that that is the place to start your case if you are a Darwinist. Is yeah. with those stories. One, because they're really interesting. Yeah, they are. And have cool pictures. A lot of creativity involved there. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of pictures of whale bones that right. you know, have old that cow into parts. And, yeah. Because their food source went away on the lands. So they had to start hunting in the sea. And then their flippers still have fingers. Right. You know what I mean? So you can make these cases yeah. based on, like you said, whether it's fossil record, comparative anatomy. Um, mm. all, all these disciplines actually present a pretty good case until you realize that those adaptations can't account for, number one, the, the microscopic processes that create those adaptations. But then secondly, um, you know, it seems like a long time to have 13 and a half billion years or whatever, you know, the history of the universe is at this point. Um, which I, I remember when we talked last time, Ben, you told me that now there's an upper bound. Uh, on how but old the there's universe There's an upward be. bound, and it got younger the other day. Yeah, That's crazy. Yeah. Um, well, you know. So those young Earth scientists uh, <laughs> that think that it's only 12 billion years old now. But yeah, yeah. Re- re- regardless of how long that seems to us, some of these processes, when you start to run the numbers on these, take a really long time. And so you really do have a limited time, even on the upper bound, to get from not a cow to a whale, from a single-cell, non-living organism to a human being. Um, and, and like we said earlier, the incremental change is going up. So it's not that hard to conceive of how you would go the other direction. So how you can go from complex to simple by means of natural selection, but to go from simple to complex in increasing orders of magnitude uh, cannot be accounted by the stories that you typically hear from the macro perspective. Right. And that's what we've talked about with the mutations as well. It's kind of you're always fighting the idea of entropy. So that things naturally are going to get more complex. They're going to get, or not more complex, they're going to get more chaotic mm-hmm. and less yeah. complex over time. And the idea that you can go from a simple one-celled organism all the way up to human beings requires a lot of swimming upstream against that. And that's why the mutations are overwhelmingly loss of function mutations to where um, if you have something change almost all the time, it's going to be changing toward less function and toward... Uh, more chaos rather than more structure and order and yeah. purpose. Well, one of the quotes I thought was really in, instructive in, in this kind of thinking was a, in one of the articles by Douglas Axe and, and Gauger says, mutation and selection can improve a good design, um, and that's what we call adaptivity, but it can never invent a good design um, because that implies some kind of telos that just isn't there in the process. Right. One of the one of the chapters, I thought this was one of the best phrases in the book, um, one of the chapters is called A Story Without a Mechanism. And I think a lot of, of and I'm not putting this on scientists who are doing this work, I'm saying it, the popularization of science and the way that we typically think of evolution taking place is susceptible to that uh, story without a mechanism. We can conceive of a way that it happened, but when you get down to the very small biological processes do you have a mechanism? Um, and, the, and the answer is no, that they're asserting in, in this book, and I think I would agree with. Yeah, I would also agree. And I think it raises even more questions than you could even answer at that level, too. And I liked a chapter in here that talked about prebiotic chemistry. So the idea of eventually life had to come about. If you just have a bunch of raw materials, somehow that has to produce life. Mm-hmm. And so there was a, a organic chemist in here talking about how he synthesizes certain things in his lab and how for each step you have to have just the right conditions over just the right amount of time, uh, temperatures, reagents, and everything has to be just perfect in order to even get an okay yield Uh in his lab. And so the idea that you could start from nothing and have all of that, that it speaks to the idea of all these processes could possibly improve already good designs. Uh-huh. But in order to get to that good design in the first place, you have so many things that are going against you. Yeah, I, I thought the, that discussion uh, of where does the initial information come from, mm-hmm. uh, rather than manipulating the information, improving the arrangement of the information, where does the initial information come from that leads to this was a good discussion. Yeah, and uh, you know there was a there was a great example in there that, um, that one of the authors was using to, to talk about some of Dawkins' work. And I feel like we should do a whole episode on Dawkins uh, for, for a lot of reasons, positive and negative. I mean, he's done more for the cause of evolution and the under, the public understanding of science uh, than maybe anyone alive. 
And he's also done more damage to the the name and work of actual scientists yeah. than anyone maybe on the planet. He's made his mark. But uh, what you know, one of the things they were talking about is in the Blind Watchmaker, which is one of those analogies I think that is just so powerful and has stuck so well uh, from his work, uh, which really is probably his best contribution is the analogies and examples that he used. He he had this system uh, or or this little experiment that he did where. You all know the the old uh, saw at this point that uh, sometimes creationists will use to say evolution is like monkeys typing on a keyboard coming up with the words of Shakespeare. Right. Right. So, and, and one of my favorite jokes from that is uh, Doug Wilson. I think somewhere says that we used to believe that millions of monkeys typing twenty four hours a day would would somehow come up with the works of Shakespeare, but the internet has proven that that is not true. <laughs> But uh, so Dawkins takes this example and he takes a line from Shakespeare uh, and the line is, methinks it is like a weasel. And it's called Dawkins' weasel. And he says, okay, if you take the 28 characters that are there and you allow a machine to simulate random mutation, how long does it take you to get to that goal? Well, one of the things he does, though, is he says, okay, we're going to have uh, letters and spaces, so you have 27 choices, you have 28 uh, spots for them to go in. And when the spaces get you know, in the right place, those are going to be weighted heavier than the other options because those are more adaptive to their environment. So he goes through this thing and he, he decides that it only takes about 60 mutations to get um, the sentence that he desires. And the person who's writing the chapter in the book is talking about computer simulation of the, mm. the conditions of evolution. He says, well, the only reason that that works is because you know the end goal before you start. So you have the sentence before you start. Uh, a, a better way of conceiving of this would be to not have a sentence in mind and not even have a language in mind. And then all of a sudden have a computer simulate something that turns out to be Shakespeare that you didn't even know was Shakespeare uh, yep. at this point. And so, you know, in his simulation, he says, well, how could we possibly tell the computer that it can only be these 28 or 27 letters in these 28 spaces? How could we tell it that it's more adaptive to have the spaces in the right place? He runs a simulation. It takes 700,000 tries to get yeah. the right thing. And, 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 and one of the latent things I think we have in mind here is that there is an end goal um, that we're assuming. And when you look at the end goal and you start to reason backwards you can see the conceivability of some of these systems, whereas if you're going to start at the beginning and not know where the end is, and all your only condition is survivability, it's much, much, much more difficult to see how this process is going to play out without any kind of guidance. Yeah, and that's I loved that chapter as well about computer modeling because they always catch headlines. I mean, it's it seems like every week there's a new headline about computer simulation, um, demonstrates the viability of Theory X. Right. And and every time I go back to my time in, in the science world, and computer simulation meant nothing <laughs> whatsoever. I remember this guy yeah. had a senior project that he brought in, and he had really worked hard on it. And I, th I think if I'm remembering right, he was trying to like give a visual representation of a gravitational wave or something. Mm -hmm. And he really worked hard and puts this thing in and he shows it to us. And the professor says, yeah, great, you, you have graphed a sine wave. Thank you. <laughs> what, what have you proved? Yeah, you knew what you thought it looked like. You yeah. made an illustration that looks like that. That's not science. Right. And that's kind of the point of that chapter. Yeah. Yeah, I, I could make a computer do what I think has already happened right. when I know what it should do. Exactly. Congrats. When I'm telling it the rules to play by, you know, it doesn't have to yes. create the rules. Yeah. You know, the other section of this of this book that I thought was interesting on the science side was the genetics uh, portion of it. And, you know, up until we had a conversation a couple of months ago, I had thought that genetics was probably the clearest holdout for the difference between a Christian worldview, a biblical worldview, and a scientific worldview. And I think in some ways it still is that. But there were a couple of chapters in this book that began to close that gap in my mind. I, I was under the impression that it was the scientific consensus that there had never been less than 10,000, plus or minus, you know, a few hominids, either humans or predecessors, 
at any one time on the earth. And so, of course, that presents an immediate problem of, well, how was there an Adam and Eve, whether as the first two or as a special two or the first two that actually transitioned past some kind of gray area point of, of cognition. Um, so I'm looking at this genetics research, at least from a popular level, and saying, man, this just does not look like it fits with any kind of reasonable explanation of the biblical text. But there's a whole section of this book devoted to what can we really tell about genetics. So what is the case that they make? In order to... In the book. Bring it back yeah. to... Um, so I think in, in that case, the idea is that there had to be enough genetic diversity at some point that it couldn't have just come all the way down to two people. Right. And, of course, if you believe that God was creating people, you know, he could have put as much variability and diversity into it as he wanted to. Yeah. Uh, but just strictly from a numbers standpoint, the reason they came up with that is because you need to have a starting pool of more variability in genes in order to kick off this process of evolution even further. Yeah. Um, well, humans. and there's a lot of, there's a lot of different areas involved in this. You know, population dynamics is one part of it. I know genetics on a molecular level is part of it. Um, and, and, and it's not that this is a concluded uh, area of science. I mean, I was just reading this week about, there was a headline a couple months ago that um, Europeans and Asians had a trace of Neanderthal in their DNA, but most of the people that they tested in Africa did not. Well, now it turns out they've run more tests, and it turns out that actually there is a portion of people in Africa who do have Neanderthal DNA. And so you get to the question of, well, how did they get it? Okay, well, you know, 20,000 years ago, there was a blending. So obviously through uh, the groups of people being together, having children, maybe it got mixed that way. But then there's another test that shows that it's been in each of these separate groups for 20 million years. And so... There's a lot that goes into trying to figure out what the genetic makeup is uh, just among people, not, not even to mention other species. Right. What goes into saying something like, looking at what we have today, there could never have been less than 10,000 people um, to create the, the genetics we have now? What, what, what is even the process of assessing that like? So... And keep it on a magic school bus level for me, please. Um, I don't want to get lost. Yeah, well, I do need the, the Mrs. Frizzled guide to this book, actually, mm -hmm. at several points. So the, I'll, I'll do my best. I can't, <laughs> I can't be Mrs. Frizzle. That's a tough bar to, to jump over. <laughs> but this is all based on sequencing. And so we completed the human genome sequencing, headed up by Francis Collins, and I don't I don't remember when they finished that, but it's been enough time now that we've yeah. done quite a bit of analysis after that. And so basically genetic research, you're looking at different sequences and you're comparing them to each other and you're trying to trace back where they could have deviated, uh, where does it branch off. So you have to have enough DNA to compare to be able to tell when a certain mutation happened and when things branched off from each other. Uh, but in doing all of that, you're just relying on comparing and projecting. And so a lot of it is guesswork, and I think that's a broader topic of the fact that we tend to believe that DNA tells us more than it actually does. Mm -hmm. And so in this case, we are able to take our database of sequences. We've sequenced everything at this point. We have humans, we have all kinds of animals as well right. to look at different genes. And so it's really just a matter of trying to reverse engineer this pathway and we take it down as far as we can um, and using just you know the process of hybridization or mixing DNA together and so when you really boil it down as far as you can go the farthest they've been able to do it is to that 10,000 mm -hmm. group of people but it's really just a lot of comparing sequences and identifying specific genes yeah and when they could have branched off from each other through that process of over and over reproducing and replicating as people have um, populated over time. Well, then let me ask you, page page 511 in your hymnal, uh, <laughs> this, um, it, it, the paragraph's in italic, so obviously it's important. 
he makes, or they actually, it's three authors of this chapter, on alternate population genetics model, makes an argument that you could get to where we need to get with a founding couple created with initial diversity. So is he trying to argue that in, instead of trying to uh, game out the diversity we see, you could build that into two people and and still get what we see without the the alternative method that we were discussing of a, a, a forking tree that goes out in all directions? Right. And okay. I, yeah, I think the assumption is that if you have this population, the population is going to be fairly similar mm-hmm. uh, because they've either evolved in the same way or that they just have similar characteristics. But what he's saying here is that if you input a creator, mm-hmm. the creator is making two people basically from nothing. From scratch, from, from the scratch. dust. Yeah. yeah. From the dust. And so the idea is that who says that the two of them have to be almost identical? Yeah. Whereas okay. in these models where you're just comparing sequences, you're assuming and acting under the assumption that ultimately you're going to get down to two very similar. Because you have to come from one to another back exactly. up the chain. So the material that you have at your disposal is a given. That, Versus yes. here, uh, you know, can you imagine a sequencing, or I'm not even sure if that's the right term, but can you imagine two people that have as far apart or diverse a set of uh, mm-hmm. genetics as you could have, and then what could you produce from those two? And that, that's one of the things that really drew me to this book is I, I thought the scholarship in this book is really interesting. Um, you know, having done a lot of reading from some of the authors who are in this book already, one of the things I really liked about it was that they're willing to include some original work uh, to, to see if, if you do good science, but you allow some assumptions that are not naturalistic in their origin what kind of conclusions can you reach? And so I'm not even saying in this article, uh, this new model that they're offering, that they started by saying, can we prove that there were two people? Uh, Because we're going to talk philosophy of science in the next episode. That can get very tricky as well. But I like the opportunity for them to say, okay, in the previous model, you work with a given set of uh, sequencing and you work your way back. But if the creation story is correct there's a different ending point that could be a possible case. So if we include something like that, what could we get to? And I don't know that yeah. this is the, the last word on genetics by any means, but it, do, it does demonstrate the kind of difference it can make depending on the assumptions that you have and the different possibilities that are open in science um, when people are imagining a few different kinds of uh, parameters. Right, you definitely have to presuppose something in doing genetic research to look back to know what you're looking for because mm-hmm. I mean otherwise it would be I mean it may already be but it may be the most boring research in the world to do because we're looking <laughs> at sequences yeah. that are represented just four letters for the four bases and um, they have databases that are just full of these but really you're just using computers to analyze similarities between these sequences so you really have to have some sort of goal in mind other than just you can't just look at it. You have to be narrowing down. So that requires you making some judgments about what came from what and how do you get all the way back to the beginning. But your assumption has to be that you're getting back to beings that would be very genetically similar and try to narrow that down as far as you possibly can. But if you just remove that presupposition from it, then genetic variability um, is much more realistic coming from two people than what we've been able to see through the evolutionary mindset, which is, it is structured in the sense that if you have two beings that are producing a third, the third is not going to have new genetic material that comes out of nowhere. It's Mm -hmm. going to get it from its two parents. But what if the two parents started with variation in the first place? Mm -hmm. Multiple children can have variants, and that's ultimately how you get variation over time. But what if that started from the very beginning? Right. You can't see that if you're just looking through the evolutionary tree where you have to narrow it all the way down based on mm-hmm. similarity. Yeah. It, whether or not that is the knockdown argument, I, I like that arguments like that are in this book. Um, and I think it's good science. I'm not in a position to be able to evaluate it 
but I know that this group that wrote this article has done some peer-reviewed science on this topic. And so that, that's the possibility that's open when you begin to really take a critical look at the, at the assumptions and the worldview implications. Back to our modeling discussion earlier, what does a model prove? Mm-hmm. Nothing. Yeah. But it's nice to have them. I mean, right. if you can't model your view, then that would be a problem. That would be a big problem. So there's an evolutionary model, and they can game that out with some nice math. And it's nice to know there are guys gaming out the other Mm-hmm. Uh, possibilities and that's yeah that's Absolutely. encouraging well to to conclude i had two questions i wanted to ask you guys um the the first one being a uh, uh, from your experience reading this book reading a lot of the literature surrounding this debate it, it strikes me that uh, there are a lot of things floating around the popular understanding of evolution and darwinism that Evolutionists and Darwinian uh, evolutionists don't actually believe anymore. And, and some of that is the success of Darwinism on a popular level is due in large part to uh, the stickiness of the metaphors and of the examples that have been used. And we can all name a bunch of those uh, that, that may or may not be true but are embedded in the cultural consciousness of when we think about science. But what are the things that that cross your mind that are, are, are in the popular consciousness when it comes to Darwinism, but probably Dar- even Darwinists don't really believe that anymore. So I would say for me, it, it has to do with DNA, which we have discussed quite a bit, but I think it's very common thought just among the general populace that DNA determines everything and that we have all these answers because now we have the information that's in DNA. And in one sense, it's true in the sense that we do have the sequencing data, and we've used that for a lot of research. If you've done 23andMe, you're utilizing that bank yeah. of knowledge that we have now. Uh, and even that is from similar studies as to like what we talked about with the population. But when it comes down to it, there's a lot more than DNA that goes into genetics. There's a whole field called epigenetics, which is the study of what other factors besides DNA itself end up producing the end product. So there are enough other factors that you can take a step back and think, wow, this is a lot more complicated than just we've sequenced human DNA, we've analyzed it, so now we have all the answers to disease and to evolution and to how these things have happened. And for each step in that process, you're relying on certain conditions or certain proteins that come along and basically trigger it different ways. So one example given in the book is the idea of RNA splicing. So as I mentioned before, RNA is, is the messenger. Messenger RNA is basically a copy of the DNA that's in a way that protein building can understand. Mm-hmm. Um, but from that one specific messenger RNA, it can actually be cut up and sliced and edited into different it, into different end products. And so just because it came from the same strain of DNA doesn't mean it's always going to end up in the same result. So in that case, it could get spliced differently and end up coding for a different protein. But what decides which version of the RNA you're going to use? And so in order to explain that from an evolutionary perspective, all of it has to go back into this really complicated system of how evolution had to produce the protein to tell the RNA to produce a different protein, and you get this really complicated web. So I think the idea that because we know about DNA now, we can understand all of our evolutionary history mm-hmm. is really just just the beginning. Like you're just sticking your toe in the water of this process. Mm-hmm. Uh, because at every step, there are other factors that are involved that can ultimately change the outcome and the final results. Um, so that's one to me that always sticks out is that just because we have DNA and we've studied it some doesn't mean we actually can explain everything through right. that because there's a lot of other stuff that goes on. Yeah. Um, for me, something I take away from this book is is the uh, multi generational nature of, of these changes and how they have to take place. Um, I think in, at the popular level, we have this image of there's some environmental change that produces a change in the species, um, and it just yeah you know, just happens. There's less water, or there's less food, and something happens, or mm-hmm. yeah, and it's. Uh, it's not as simple as that. You, you need to have 
a, a very small, minute change happening over a sequence of several generations to, to produce what we need for this to work. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I still think, no matter how often we say that in a biology class, in our heads, there's still this idea that the pond drives up and the fish grow lungs, you know, and it's yeah. just kind of like this right. environmental change results in something magical. And I, this book helped to illustrate that that might, and I'm not sure if this is true, that might have been something you could rationally contemplate in the 19th century. Uh, if it ever was a conception that would work, it, it's certainly not now. It's right. way more complicated right. than that. Yeah. Some Somehow, some way, Carson and I have been round and round on this before. I don't think this was even taught in school when I was there, but somehow I got onto the recapitulation theory, which is it, it, the, the formal statement of it is ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. I which saw is, that sentence in the notes, and I realized there was only one word in that sentence I knew, and that was recapitulate. <laughs> Go ahead. Which is basically the belief that... Um, either in the womb or um, in the development process that an organism will recapitulate, will go through the evolutionary process that it went through. And so the early drawings would be like, you know, you start out with human babies, they look like fish because fish were at the beginning, you know, and then they grow the bird phase, and then they have a mammalian monkey phase, they lose the tail, they come out, you know, as a human being, and you you go back through this whole thing. And for some reason, I don't know, I, I had that embedded in my mind that that was an evolutionary concept. And, and I, when I was reading this book, I realized that hasn't been true. Nobody even thought that since like the mid-19th century. But, um, it was in the monkey trial or something. Yeah, was, so, yeah something like back that. There, yeah. Anyway, but I thought that was a very cool theory. It would be really cool. Um, it would be really cool yeah. if it happened. But I think there, just to, just to say that to, to make the bigger point of um, the relatedness of species is exaggerated in a lot of people's minds, certainly in mine, when it comes to the origin of species. That uh, there are these clear links between fish and then amphibians and mammals and, you know, the phrase, we descended from apes. Well, actually, the situation is much more complicated than that, even for people that are doing... Darwinian research, uh, Darwinian biology and research, uh, the zoology just does is not clear cut like that. There there are no smooth scene points like that. Even for the people doing research that have no interest in uh, creation or something like that, and so I think that's been smoothed into a paradigm. Uh, the ease with which you can change between these different kinds of species that just uh, that it is just not representative of the science. And we didn't really hit on it. But going into the fossil record, you can really see that. It was surprising to me in reading this where it mentioned that most of the ancient hominid fossils that we have are really just bone shards uh-huh. that have to be reconstructed yes. by computers or however they do that. Mm-hmm. And that was surprising to me because I think I had bought into that idea that these things are much more complete and much more connected yeah. than they really are. Yeah, I mean, you clearly trace the different... Australopithecus, and then you have Cro-Magnon, you have, you know, but it's like the, the, the substance behind that is actually much more a figment of whatever the person is wanting to find in those fragments in, in the recreation than, okay, well, we have this series of eight complete skeletons that show these deviations and changes over time. Uh, and that's just on a, that's just on a very small scale, especially when he gets to the fossil record going from one species to another, it's just been it's been long enough, and the archaeology and the paleontology has been uh, funded well enough that those holes in the fossil record are no, no longer holes. They're actually indicating a completely different story than uh, the one that we'd previously been told. So, if you guys were going to give some advice, both of you all got degrees in the sciences. Um, if you're going to give some advice to somebody studying the natural sciences, engaged in the natural sciences about the relationship between science and faith, what advice would you give or what comment would you make? Take some history classes is always my advice uh, to supplement your science. And I've, I've made it now when I teach adjunct classes. I'm, I'll make a... If I lecture three times a week, one of those is going to be about the history of that development because uh, of the contextualization of, of the ideas that they don't pop out of nowhere, that the the data has to be given a, a skeleton, and that comes out of um, some picture in somebody's mind of how it might have happened. 
and had it been a different moment in history, it might have been a different picture. In fact, that's exactly what happens every so often as somebody comes along with a different arrangement of the data that at that moment in history makes perfect sense. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm sure we'll get to it in another episode, but C.S. Lewis makes a comment about every generation gets the science they want. Mm. That there, there is a human component to the arrangement of data, and the history of science really brings that to life for me. Um, and, and reminds me that there was a time when it was people of faith doing a lot of that picture painting, yeah. and, and should be again. Right. Yeah, mine is similar uh, to yours, Ben. Just the idea of perspective, I think, because it's easy sitting in a college class, and for me it was physiology, and our professor was a very, is a very smart guy who was very devoted to Darwinism, and he just loved it. Like, you could tell he had a real passion for it, mm -hmm. and it's convincing, uh, because you're trying to learn in the class, and they'll present to you, uh, like the stories that we mentioned about another professor that we had, or they'll show you images or things that look really convincing. But just to try to keep perspective, um, and I like that you mentioned history too, the idea that over time, these things have changed a whole lot already, and they're going to change even more in the future. And so I think that ultimately will draw you back to searching for something that doesn't change, uh, and that's your faith, and that's... God and Jesus Christ, and these are the things that, that don't change, are the same yesterday, today, and forever, whereas mm -hmm. science clearly isn't. It's not even close. And so my advice would just be to try to keep that perspective, because they'll try to convince you that if, you, if your primary allegiance is to your faith, and that mm -hmm. shapes your entire worldview, they'll try to convince you that that's unscientific and that you shouldn't be doing that, but right. it's not. You can do science, and you can still be committed, first of all, to your faith, to the scriptures, uh, and to what you know to be true. It's mm -hmm. possible to do those things even though they tell you that it's not. Um, so I, I would say just try, try to keep that perspective of the history of science, that it's going to change and that it's, yeah. it changes every sometimes months, years, decade. Uh, of, of how recent and how large some of those developments are, you see it in a textbook and you just assume that's what we've known for a long time. Um, I don't know, one of the big ones for me was realizing it wasn't until the age of Edwin Hubble that we really knew there was anything beyond our galaxy. Mm. Like, we kind of felt like that was the extent of the universe. The idea of galaxies, plural, was a development of the early 20th century. Yeah. And now we have a model where all that comes from. Well, we just figured out it was there a couple of decades yeah. back. You yeah. Know? yeah. So, it's the same it, thing with genetics, almost yeah. the exact same timeline. Yeah. It wasn't yeah. until the 1950s, really, that we had any... We just got to DNA, like, yeah. the other day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and now we're trying to understand it. But yeah, that's the that's the advice I always give people when I have conversations with college students especially. But this is pertinent to people working in the medical field or researchers sure. or whatever, is, yeah, understand your faith. And we're going to talk about that in the next episode. I think that's a big area for people is some battles you don't even actually have to fight yeah. uh, that you feel the pressure to stand up for. Uh, but then secondly, do great science. Um, science and faith are not the enemies of each other. Uh, like both of you guys have said, just to recap and end on this note, Christians should be the one doing, doing the best science and the best arts for that matter. And, you know, I think in, in so many areas, but if we believe the world was created by God and we can see his character and the things that he's made, then we should be exploring the things that he's made. And science is a great way to do that. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast. Yeah.